So okay, let's nice. see. Let's see if this works now. poem is symbolic of leaving the artist's life in Chelsea and going over the river to Battersea to work in a wartime factory. The Bridge. Where is the truth that will inform my sorrow? I am sure myself that sorrow is not the truth. These lovely shapes of sorrow are empty vessels waiting for wine. They wait to be informed. Men make the vessels on either side of the river. On this, the hither side, the artists make them, and there over the water the workmen make them. These frail with a peacock glaze, and the others heavy, simple as doom, made to endure the furnace. War shatters the peacock jars. Let us go over. Indeed, we have no choice but to go over. There is always a way for those who must go over. Always a bridge from the known to the unknown. When from the known the mind revolts and despairs, there lies the way, and there we must go over. O oh, truth, is it death there over the river? Or is it life, new life in a land of summer? The mind is an empty vessel, a shape of sorrow. Fill it with life or death, for it is hollow, dark wine or bright. Fill it, let us go over. Let me go find my truth over the river. out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College, and I have with me today a scholar of one of those others who were associated with the Inklings, Ruth Pitter. Don W. King is the person I have with me today, not Ruth Pitter, but he has made a special study of Ruth Pitter's poetry. And Ruth Pitter herself was was a good friend of C.S. Lewis. Um, and, and I'm excited to hear Dr. King talk about, talk about Pitter's poetry. Dr. King is a professor of English at Montreat College. He has published five books concerning Lewis, including Plain to the Inward Eye, Selected Essays on C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse, Hunting the Unicorn, A Critical Biography of Ruth Pitter, Out of My Bone, The Letters of Joy Davidman, and Yet One More Spring, A Critical Study of the Works of Joy Davidman. He has also contributed articles on C.S. Lewis's poetry to the C.S. Lewis Reader's Encyclopedia and to C.S. Lewis Life, Works, and Legacy. He has twice led week-long summer seminars on Lewis at Lewis's home kilns for the C.S. Lewis Foundation's Summer Seminars and Residence Program. Dr. King, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Ruth 
Pitter. I'm really excited to to delve into this poet. Well, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be with you. I love to talk about Pitter. She is definitely a 20th century poet who's been neglected, I think. Yeah, yeah. And in, in preparation, you know, I one of my former co-hosts who who just hasn't had enough time to to be on the podcast recently, Annika Smith was was a big fan of Pitter. She's a big fan of Lewis's poetry, but she had been wanting to do a Ruth Pitter podcast. And it, honestly, it had been the first I'd heard of Pitter, but, you know, purchasing her collected poems, reading some of your articles and, and, and a bit of your book, Hunting the Unicorn, I'm just consistently impressed with Ruth Pitter's thought with, with her poems. And I'm a little bit shocked that I had never really studied her until now. Well, I think part of the problem with Ruth Pitter, the reason she's not well-known, is that she was writing some of her best poetry during the 20th century modernist period. And so she's not she's not like T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound or, or even Auden, much more of a traditional poet in the line of Thomas Hardy, A.E. Houseman, Yeats, and even to some degree Philip Larkin. Larkin, who published the 20th century, what was it called? The 20th century volume of modern poetry, I'm sorry, or the Oxford book of 20th century poetry. He included four excerpts or four of Pitter's poems. So he had quite a high opinion of Pitter. Hmm. But again, she she didn't, she wasn't avant-garde. She worked very much with traditional verse forms and meters. So I think that's why she's been somewhat looked over. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, this, this podcast does a tiny little bit to uh, to to change that, you know, baby steps. Um, Hope so, because she's so she's so worth it. She's she's such a fun, yeah, fun poet. Excellent verse. It's beautiful. It's homely and and humorous. Yeah. So I, I've I've just been enjoying it. It's no wonder why C.S. Lewis enjoyed her as a poet as much as he did. Yeah, she was she was the well-known poet when Lewis was writing, and he was kind of the wannabe poet. And yeah. We may get into this later on, but I think it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in many ways, Pitter was sort of a poetic mentor for Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I definitely want to get into that. I, I guess before anything else, I asked you to choose a poem. By the way, Listeners, that's Pitter's own voice that you heard at the top of the show. I asked you to choose a, a poem by Pitter to have read at the beginning of the show, and you chose The Bridge. Yeah. Why, why, did, you, why did you choose The Bridge? Sure. This poem comes from the volume of poetry that she wrote during World War II entitled The Bridge. And during World War II, she lived in London. And she was living in one of the heavily bombed out areas of London. Her profession was as a, an artisan, and we can get into that later on. But she lived in the Chelsea section of London, the sort of artsy, crafty section of London. And every day after the war began, she had to go to work at a munitions factory. And so she had to cross from sort of the arty, artsy area into the working person's area, if you will. And she always had to go over Battersea Bridge, a bridge over the Thames River. So I think every day it was played out in her life. She had to move away from the artist's life where she would have liked to spend her time 
to be more engaged in, you know, wartime efforts. But rather than sink into despair at this prospect, she she embraced the unknown and she, she she suggests that going over the river is towards the unknown. It wasn't something that she was afraid of. She was concerned about it, but she saw it as a, an opportunity to move further into whatever whatever the truth was that she was going to find over the river. She writes, Oh, truth, is it death over the river, or is it life, new life in the land of summer? The mind is an empty vessel, a shape of sorrow. Fill it with life or death, for it is hollow. Dark wine or bright, fill it. Let us go over. Let me go find my truth over the river. So again, rather than be reclusive, rather than run away from the danger, she chose to embrace it. And I think that that shows us something about the character of, of Ruth Pitter. Yeah. 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 She's, I don't know if hardy is the right word. It's, it's a great image for this way in which she's also bridging the poetic and sort of workaday artisan world, right? Right. Having to, you know, as, as I'm sure we'll get into having to work six days a week, 12 hours a day, right? And yet at the same time, being such a brilliant poet uh, and doing her duty, yeah. right? As, as you're saying, yeah. Could I, could I just tell you a, a bit about how I got interested in Pitter? Please, yes. Okay, so when I was working on my book on Lewis as a poet, I came across correspondence between Lewis and Pitter. And uh, I, cont- I was con- planning to contend in my book on Lewis as a poet that his best poetry is really found in his prose. I mean, he is a good poet, but I think his, he's most poetic, I suppose, in his prose. Yeah. Anyway, when I came across this correspondence between Pitter and Lewis, she had written him and asked if she could take the end of Paralandra and turn those into Spencerian stanzas because wow. she, she read them. They were, they were so poetic. And so Lewis responded, I'm not sure why you want to want to waste your poetry on my prose, but it's okay with me if you want to do that. So that set me off in a search trying to find these transcriptions. I happened to be at the Bodleian doing research, and I didn't know where Ruth Pitter's papers were, so I thought I'd just take a chance and ask if the Bodleian had them. And so the person I was working with made himself available to me, and I said, do you have Ruth Pitter's papers? And he said, well, of course we have Ruth Pitter's papers. And I said, well, can I see them? And he said, no, you may not. <laughs> and I said, why not? And he said, well, they haven't been cataloged yet. We Americans are sort of used to things happening pretty quickly. But I think the Bodleian certainly at that time was understaffed. And so they had had the papers for about nine years and they were just sort of sitting in several boxes. Hmm. They did have a single piece, a single sheet of paper with a one-line description of the 36 boxes of Pitter's material that they had. So uh, supervisor let me take a look at the, you know, at the sheet. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I told him, I think if you let me look at these last four boxes, I think if what I'm looking for is going to be anywhere, it will be in those four boxes. And so in the end he agreed to let me look at those boxes. And I won't make this overly dramatic, but it really was my last day at the Bodleian. Oh, and, wow. And it was in, uh, that, at least on that visit. 
And it was the next to last box that had a number of her manuscript notebooks, you know, poems that she'd written by hand. And sure enough, when I opened up that next to last box and opened up one of the one of the notebooks, there were her transcriptions of the end of Paralandra. Wow. And so I published those in in Sudden Heaven, the collected poems of Ruth Pitter that came out with Kent came out in 2018 with Kent State University Press. So that was sort of the beginning of a love story between me and Ruth Pitter. Hmm. My wife jokingly calls Ruth Pitter my mistress. So <laughs> I spent so much time with her <clears throat> over the years. But anyway, that that was kind of the start of my interest. That's wonderful. And I love a good, you know, adventures and scholarship sort of tale. Yeah. The the closer we can get to being a little bit more like Indiana Jones, I think the better. <laughs> and then that's 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 certainly got got suspense yeah. in it. No, I love that. You you started to talk a bit about why Pitter was neglected and uh, yeah, and namely that she did not follow the kind of modernist trend that that seemed to have taken center stage in the story of, you know, English verse throughout the rest really of the 20th century and into the 21st. Can you say more about that and 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 also I guess the corollary what what in your opinion makes her such a good poet? Sure. I think that again she She's not, she, well, she was not a self-promoter. That was another reason why she never sort of caught the critical eye. She did have, as you know, she did have a number of admirers like Hilar Belloc and A.R. Alraj. And later on, David Cecil was a huge fan of Pitter. But in part because she was somewhat reclusive, and again, because she worked more in those traditional meters, and poetic forms, she just wasn't, she wasn't avant-garde at all. And so I think she's just sort of stayed in the background. I think that's the primary reason why she has, for the most part, been neglected. Yeah. In terms of her, in terms of her biography, was she, was she a poet from early on? Was she, was it, was it something that came about later? Had, had she always written verse? From a very early age, she was writing poetry. I think her first poem was written when she was about eight years old. Her father was friends with Oraj, A-R, or excuse me, O-R, Oraj, excuse me, A-R, Oraj. And he was the editor of one of the sort of progressive publications at the time. And her father sent Oraj one of her early poems. And Oraj was really, he was really impressed by the poem and he wrote her back a very complimentary letter and said that he would like to see any of the poems that she wanted to publish she wanted to send him and eventually a, a warm friendship developed and over the next i think over the next 15 years he published about 120 of her poems hmm. now those early poems aren't really very good i don't think they're almost, they're very much sort of Edwardian kind of poems. Right. Pitter's, Pitter's voice doesn't come through very clearly at all. Yeah. Well, uh, the first the first one I read in, in Hunting the Unicorn book, I mean, for a 13-year-old, right? She was about oh, yeah. 13. I mean, it's pretty dang good. <laughs> good. Yeah. I'd, but, I'd love to be able yeah. to write it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's how she got promoted, at least initially, was because of that connection with Oraj. 
And then she publishes in the 20s with uh, Belloc's help. She publishes first poems. And then towards the end of the 20s, she publishes second poems. Uh, and then, I, again, I would just say as a group, I mean, they're, they're admirable poems. There's nothing wrong with the poems. But I don't think she has a very well-developed voice in those poems. They're somewhat impersonal. A key thing that changed that was, <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> she, by this time, by the late 20s and early 30s, she was, as I mentioned earlier, she was an artisan. And she, what she did was painted, she painted furniture. Later in her life, it was almost exclusively tea trays, but she painted chairs and she painted, you know, dressers, you know, she painted whatever, whatever needed to be painted. But she, when she was opening a can of paint one day, I guess because of the pressure that had built up inside of the paint, it, it exploded. And some of the paint itself flew up into her eye, um, her left eye, and also some of the, some of the, some of the debris that came out of the can. Hmm. And so for about six months, she was blind in that one eye. Oof. And while that could have been a, a real crisis for her, and it was because she couldn't work as an artisan, at the same time, it forced her to, I think, go deep within herself. And instead of relying on the sort of distant voice, she draws from her, from the deepest wells of herself. And she also draws less from seeing things and writing about them and instead processing things through her memory. And I think that when she, when she does that, when she goes back and thinks about the experiences that she's had, the poetry that she produces is quite powerful. And I, I would say that from that point on, from, say, the early 30s, she publishes A Mad Lady's Gar Garland, which is kind of a, it's a group of humorous poems. But then her first serious volume of verse is A Trophy of Arms. And there, I think we see her really beginning to hit her stride as a poet. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive in a way, right? That her having to support herself, you know, as, as an artisan, right. As a, as someone who makes furniture, as someone who paints tea trays actually leads to her finding her own specific poetic voice. I know, I know for me, you know, with my writing, I, I'm, I'm just kind of like, if I, if I just have more time to work on it, yeah. then I would, you know, soar up into the poetic heavens. Right. But, but Pitter, there's such a it, it seems like there's such a uh, a sharpening that happens right yeah. from yeah. from just needing to do ordinary things and, and that's so reflected in her in her poetry how would you characterize her her mature vo voice what would you say it kind of involves i think it primarily involves her interest in nature and in particular natural events she's enthralled with birds various kinds of birds swans in particular. She writes several poems about swans. So nature, I think, is one really significant part of her work. Second area is really her exploration of, I guess we could group together the idea of immortality and death and God. And it, if you read through her verse, you can see that she's gradually moving away from a sort of agnostic position to a theistic position, and then eventually, in part because of 
hearing C.S. Lewis's radio broadcast during World War II on the BBC, she becomes a Christian. And then I guess a third group, our third thematic focus, and this is a little bit vague, but it covers a lot of things. It's just her interest in the human condition and writing about what it means to be a human being, our joys and our fears and our frustrations and, and so forth. And, and and those war poems certainly bring that out, I think. Hmm. Hmm. Would you mind playing another of of her poems? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. then, and then we'll get into her becoming a Christian. Yeah. Let me put, play for you Stormcock and Elder. And I think she gives a little introduction. And this refers to that injury I was talking about. Oh, sounds great. Stormcock and Elder. This is a much anthologized poem. And it has a special interest because... When I conceived it, I was blind temporarily. I'd had an accident, and while my eyes were out of action, I saw this bird, and I never saw it with my eyes open, down to the minutest detail. There's something mysterious there. I think it's one of the consolations, perhaps, of the blind to recollect in such detail. And this actually happened. It's pretty self-explanatory. The stormcock, of course, is the English missile thrush, a big, strong bird which rejoices in bad weather. You can see it with its breast ringing wet, singing loudly and swaying on the topmost branch of a tree. The rougher it is, the better he likes it. Stormcock in Elder. In my dark hermitage, aloof from the world's sight and the world's sound, by the small door where the old roof hangs but five feet above the ground, I groped along the shelf for bread, but found celestial food instead. For suddenly, close at my ear, loud, loud and wild, with wintry glee, the old unfailing chorister burst out in pride of poetry, and through the broken roof I spied him by his singing glorified. Scarcely an arm's length from the eye, myself unseen, I saw him there, the throbbing throat that made the cry the breast dewed from the misty air, the polished bill that opened wide and showed the pointed tongue inside, the large eye ringed with many a ray of minion feathers finely laid, the feet that grasped the elder spray, how strongly used, how subtly made, the scale, the sinew and the claw, plain through the broken roof I saw. The flight feathers in tail and wing, the shorter coverts, and the white merged into russet, marrying the bright breast to the pinions bright, gold sequins, spots of chestnut, shower of silver like a brindled flower. Soldier of fortune, northwest jack, old hard times braggart, there you blow. But tell me, ere your bagpipes crack, how you can make so brave a show? All fed in February, and dressed like a rich merchant at a feast. One half the world, or so they say, knows not how half the world may live. So sing your song and go your way, and still in February contrive, as bright as Gabriel, to smile on elder spray by broken time. That's it. Hmm. I love that. You know, there's such a there's such a tradition in English poetry of describing bird song. So often, 
it's simulating you know the kind of the direct experience of bird song right and i love that she's ruminating on the fact that this is remembered right and and remembered right. because or or the really the the bird itself the details of the bird are remembered because it's because she's currently blind that's a, where, she, where she had once embraced nature visually i think this blindness forced her to explore her memories of nature and natural objects in a more deliberative reflective and kind of intuitive manner so she really engages in a kind of inner exploration and through this poem and many that follow she explores i think it's kind of the mystery of living and so she no longer, as she had in those early poems, sort of stayed on the surface of things. She she goes deeper. She explores her she explores herself and her own understanding of the world and her own coming to grips with the world around her. Hmm. Hmm. So part of that, you know, growing understanding did it involve conversion to Christianity. Was she already a Christian, and or or huh. did she come to faith later in life? She comes to faith later in life. She, her parents had her and her siblings go to the local Methodist church, but it was, it was more of a social and culturization. It wasn't really a, you know, religious kind of experience. And so I would say that during many of her years living in Chelsea, she was pretty close to being what would we call it today. I don't know if we'd even use this kind of sort of a bohemian lifestyle. They would have used mm -hmm. that kind of terminology back then. I don't know what we would use today necessarily, but it's sort of a free spirit. But that comes to a crushing or a crashing halt with with World War II mm. and the terrible things that were going on. And Lewis, Lewis played an important part in this. I mentioned before that she heard him speak on the BBC radio. And she writes about, let me read to you what she writes about her experience hearing Lewis, as I said, she, she worked in the, the munitions or, or, or the war-making part of London, even though she lived in Chelsea. But she had to go across that bridge every day, Battersea Bridge. And about a week before this passage I'm going to read to you, about a week before that, a woman had jumped off the bridge and committed mm -hmm. suicide. And I think this points, or I think this passage from one of her letters suggest that well why while she was standing on the Battersea Bridge, she was standing at the very place where that woman had committed suicide just a week earlier. So she writes this there were air raids at night, the factory was dark and dirty. And I remember thinking, well, I must find somebody or something because like this I cannot go on. This would have been March nineteen forty three. I stopped in the middle of the Battersea Bridge one dreadful March night when it was cold and the wind was howling over the bridge and it was as dark as the pit. And I stood and leaned against the parapet and thought, like this, I cannot go on. And it didn't come to me at once, but sometime afterwards I heard the broadcast talks of C.S. Lewis, and I at once grappled them to my soul, as Shakespeare says. And I used to assemble the family to hear because I thought that they were so good that even from the point of view of enjoyment, people shouldn't miss them. And I got every word of his that I could, and I could see by hard argument that there was only the one way for it. I had to be intellectually satisfied as well as emotionally, because at that time of life, and she's in her middle to late 30s, because at that time of life, 
one doesn't just fall into it, Christianity, in adolescent emotion. And I was satisfied at every point that it was the one way and the hard way to do things. So if Lewis was, if Pitter was Lewis's mentor as a poet, Lewis was a mentor to Pitter with regard to faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, you know, as, as with so many people, I think during World War II, Lewis is tremendously influential spiritually. Um, she's hearing his broadcast talks. He's, you know, increasingly, you know, I think he's like the second most recognized voice on the radio after Churchill or something like that. Is that, is that what a lot of people have said? Yeah. But, but yeah, she, he's, he's becoming a public figure or, or has, has become a public figure. And then she becomes friends with him. How, how did that come about? They had a they had a common friend Herbert Palmer who was oh he would be offended for me to say this but he was sort of a minor poet at the time and he used to bother Pitter by sending him all of his poems and hmm. he, he would get very upset if his poetry was not you know viewed as really significant but anyway he was also <laughs> a friend with with Lewis Palmer was and it was through that connection that Pitter and Lewis began a correspondence. And eventually, and I think their first meeting was at Maudlin College in 1946. She came up at Lewis's invitation and they struck up a, a friendship. And over the next, oh, probably over the next four or five years, they met, I don't want to say frequently, but they had regular meetings. Sometimes she would go to his rooms at Baldwin, and sometimes he would come to her rooms there in Chelsea. And by the way, Another good friend that developed out of this relationship was Pitter's relationship with Owen Barfield. Mm -hmm. Barfield thought she was a fantastic poet, and his letters to her are magnificent. So if you ever get a chance to... I I mentioned a number of those letters in Hunting the Unicorn, but Mm -hmm. if you ever get a chance to read those letters, they're pretty striking how much both Pitter, how much Barfield liked and approved of Pitter's poetry. Yeah. 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 It it seems, yeah, it seems that there's, there's so much that, you know, not only she and Lewis, but she and generally the kind of group of people that Lewis is friends with, right. Whether the Inklings or or, or other friends, they seem to have a common approach and, and rejecting, trying to reject the spirit of the age and then modernism and, and agreeing on, I mean, as I read her poems, I'm, I'm kind of like, it's hard not to think of her, and Joy will forgive me, but it's hard not to think of her as like kind of the natural soulmate of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, there are uh, plenty of people who thought that if Lewis ever married, it would be Ruth Pitter. Yeah. 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 Does she, yeah, do, do you think as, as far as you can tell, did she seem to have romantic feelings for Lewis? I think that she... Probably did. Mark Pitter, her nephew and her current literary executor, certainly believed that his his aunt had had feelings for Lewis, but she never would have she never would have revealed them. She would have had to have been pursued. She would not be the pursuer. Right. Of course, Joy, who was another woman who I love, Joy had no problem pursuing. Right. Yeah. Americans. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that was kind of the the real key. 
I, I wanted you to hear what Lewis wrote to Pitter after she sent him her volume, Trophy of Arms. Yeah. This, this is a letter from July, I think, of 1947. He writes to her, Trophy of Arms is enough for one letter, for it has most deeply delighted me. I was prepared for the more definite mystical poems, but not for this cool classical quality. You do it time after time, create a silence and vacancy and all around the poem. If the lady in Comus had written poetry, one imagines it would have been rather like this. I love that line. Hmm. Uh, I think Pitter would have uh, been, been so delighted. By the way, Pitter was not university educated. Mm -hmm. And so someone like, well, like Barfield or by or Lewis or any of these university men would have been in some ways you know, sort of iconic. So to get praise like that from Lewis would have just been been the world to her. Yeah. Yeah. Reading some of I read I read your article in Mythlore, I think, from close to 20 years ago. But uh, some some of the quotations you have from her letters She's just so excited every time she talks about C.S. Lewis. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, you know, yeah. she, she's giddy, which is which is just fascinating. Why do you think? I mean, she knew a lot of important intellectuals and poets. She knew Orwell as a silly young man. She knew Hilaire Belloc. She, you know, she she knew a, a ton of important people. Why do you think she was so taken with Lewis out of all of them? Well, again, I, I'll just go back to the fact I think she owed Lewis very much her her spiritual maturation, if you will. And she thought he was a good poet, not a great poet. But I think she just appreciated him in general as a writer. She loved the screw tape letters. She actually wrote an essay on the Ransom trilogy. She reviewed a number of his books, some a little bit later than what we're talking about right now. But I, I think that she she found in Lewis's intellect and in his compassion something that many of us today find attractive in Lewis. So yeah, she she didn't have the American penchant for wanting to be around celebrities like maybe Joy did, but she wanted she wanted to have a, a, a good relationship with Lewis. Could it have been romantic, perhaps? But I don't think she would have, as I said before, I don't think she would have pushed herself forward. Let me let me let you let me let you hear another poem. Yes, that I, I think that reveals that. This is called "If You Came." Now, on the surface, this relates still to the old cottage, a secret place where those who know it may come and find it out. And those who don't know it will pass it by. It also relates to the secret places of a woman's heart, for the woman must be wooed. She will not woo for herself. She will have the fullest confession of love before she herself will respond. This is an ancient feminine trick, which I dare say is a great deal out of vogue, but I feel it is very profound and very real. If you came, if you came to my secret blade, weary with heat, I would set you down in the shade, I would wash your feet. If you came in the winter sad, wanting for bread, I would give you the last that I had. I would give you my bed. But the place is hidden apart, like a nest by a brook. And I will not show you my heart by a word, by a look. The place is hidden apart, like the nest of a bird. 
and I will not show you my heart by a look, by a word. That poem always, to me, has sort of explained Ruth Pitter's reticent, I suppose, in terms of romantic relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked my wife when I first read the poem, I read it to her, and I said something like, is this really true? Is this the way women are? And she <laughs> said, duh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's such a lovely poem. I mean, again, this is, you know, hopefully this doesn't turn into the Inklings gossip hour. But do you think that, do you think that Lewis reciprocated any of these feelings? Is Is there any way to actually you know, have some idea of this? I don't think that he really reciprocated. I think I'm trying to recall this. I should have I should have looked this up. But I, I think that at one point, George Sayre said to Lewis something along the lines that, you know, if you ever married, Ruth Pitter might be the, you know, the, the right person for you to marry. But Lewis said something like, no, I've burned my boats. Hmm. Uh, and again, this is right before joy comes on the scene. You know, there's, there's this really interesting, in, the, in 1951, Mrs. Moore, the woman who Lewis lived with all those years, dies. Lewis is developing this relationship with Ruth Pitter from 1946 on. But he gets his first letter from joy in 1951. So there's this really interesting kind of dynamic that's going on. And again, Pitter, Pitter wouldn't have put herself forward. So did Lewis have any romantic feelings for Pitter? Possibly, but I, I don't think he, he obviously didn't follow up on him if he did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they just seem so suited in so many ways yeah. in terms of their thought, in terms of their inclination. But you know, I mean, I, I guess it's not always the person who is who seems perfectly suited for you that is you know that is destined for you. A lot of times, opposites attract. Yeah. How how what was her influence on his poetry? How did she help him shape? his poetry i don't think she shape, helped shape his poetry but oftentimes he would send her two or three versions of the same poem and he would ask her to make a judgment which which of these versions do you think is better of course she was delighted to be asked such a question by you know the sort of star that you know, the way she thought about lewis but she would respond and you know offer comments about his his poems that you can read that in the letters back and forth between the two of them she does make one judgment later on about Lewis as a poet that I don't know if you've come across this yet. That she writes, this is from her journal. She writes, now I wonder, is Lewis's poetry, after all, not? About how many poets or poems would readers agree 100% or even 50%? The peaks of poetry are shiftingly veiled and different readers catch different glimpses of the transcendental. I should like to know more about the actual process of conception in his case. Did his great learning and really staggering skill and verse inhibit the poetry? Did he ever, like most of us, catch some floating bit of emotional thistle down and go on from that? Or did he plan on a subject like an architect? 
He had a great stock of the makings of a poet, strong visual memory, strong recollections of childhood, desperately strong yearnings for lost paradise and hoped heaven, not least a strong primitive intuition of the diabolical. In fact, his whole life was oriented and motivated by an almost uniquely persisting child's sense of glory and of nightmare. The adult events were re received into a medium still as pliable as wax, wide open to the glory, and equally vulnerable with a man's strength to feel it all in a great scholar's and writer's skills to express and to interpret. It's almost as though the adult disciplines, notably the technique of his verse, had largely inhibited his poetry, which is perhaps, after all, most evident in his prose. I think he wanted to be a poet more than anything. Time will show, but if it was magic he was after, he achieved this sufficiently elsewhere, that is, in his prose. And some of the things that she said about Lewis are, are just so, yeah, just penetrating and insightful. Whether that, I, I also I forget where it was that I, I think it was it was certainly in something of yours i think it was in the in the myth lore article where she said that she didn't think lewis was misogynist that his aversion to the company of women seemed to stem from him being kind of burnt by the fact that his mother died when he was so young yeah. Which is just, I was just like, oh, wow, that's really, that's really insightful. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. He wanted to know if she ever came to an Inklings meeting. Yes. She, she did not. Okay. Yeah. 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 But she seems to have known few of the Inklings individually anyway and gone to, did she go, did she ever go to lunch with both Lewis and Barfield to your, to yeah, your knowledge? She, uh, she, she okay. had them to her flat on a several occasions, the two of oh, them. That's great. And her other, even closer in relationship was her relationship with David and Rachel Cecil. And Cecil was one of the inklings, or at least he's usually included, included in the long lists. She actually had a very warm and long relationship with David Cecil. He too found her poetry just overwhelmingly good. And he would write her long letters about the various volumes that she published. And she, he would talk about poems, you know, in particular talk about poems that he found so powerful. So it's really interesting that she had these relationships with, what is it? That's that's three of the Inklings, if you will, Cecil, Barfield, and, and Lewis. And she, she knew Warren Lewis, but it was much more of a casual kind of thing. When, when she came to the kilns, for instance, for lunch, Warren Lewis would have been there. He had a very high opinion of her as a poet and as a woman, so... Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy the, the, the poem actually titled after Lewis, Lewis appears, uh, yeah. which is, which is about when Lewis takes a position at the more sort of liberal, I guess you could, you could say, right. Cambridge Lewis appears the Trojan dinosaur eggs of ambivalence distend his mar. What meant the fathers to convey him in? I wish I knew the mind of those grave men. But that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, she actually has a lot of humorous poems. We haven't talked about those at all, but yeah. she has a lot of, I mean, I mentioned A Mad Lady's Garland, but she also wrote a volume entitled On Cats. And mm -hmm. 
wonderful. If you're a cat lover, you've got to read Ruth Pitter's poems on, on cats. Yeah, she, I'm I'm gathering both from what Lewis says and from some of her poems that she rescued a kitten in the Blitz. Yeah. And wrote a called him, called him or her Blitz, Blitz kit. Blitz kit. Yeah. Yeah. She also wrote a volume entitled The, the Rude Potato, a volume of poems about gardening. Yeah. And when Lewis heard about it, I think he wrote her and said, I'm really anxious to see how rude a potato can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, cats, gardening, and, uh, and uh, oddly enough, at least in a few places, I've noticed lions popping up in her, in her poetry. Um, which yeah, is, you mentioned that in your questions. I'll have to go yeah. back. I, I don't, I can't, any, not many of them pop into my mind, but what poems did you see? I mean, I've, I've been grazing on, <laughs> I, I have not, I have not read it from cover to cover. So it's possible that it was just a sort of kind of serendipitous that I found, you know, a couple at least poems about lions. I neglected to fold the page where I, where I noted it though. So you know, at least we've got cats and gardening we could talk about. And if I if I come back across the the poems about lions, oh, here's one: caged lion. You are afraid. You do not dare up to the lion to lift your eyes, and unashamed his beauty share as once in that lost paradise. With fallen cunning, lay the snare. With fearful glee, shoot home the bar. Show him for pence imprisoned there in a foul sepulchre, a star. His mane and neck of massy girth, only one arm in love enfolds. His beauty humbled to the earth, only my wrathful God beholds. About, I'm assuming, a lion at a zoo. But yeah, her, most of her poetry, it's not this sort of transporting sansukti northernness, right? But but a kind of a kind of homeliness in, instead, right? This other sort of pole of I think Lewis and also Tolkien and also a bunch of the Inklings aesthetic tastes, right? For for kind of the earthy, homely uh, sort of thing. She reminds me sort of 20th century, you know, female Bilbo Baggins. I love the everydayness of of her of her poems. And not for that reason being any less spectacular, right? It's it's these ordinary moments that most need to be transported by poetry. But yeah, so um, many of so many of Pitter's readers loved her for the reasons you just mentioned. And I, I'll I'll tell you that even though I published what Hunting Hunting the Unicorn, even though I published a biography of her almost fifteen years ago now, I I usually get one or two emails a month from somebody who's come across one of Pitter's poems and, you know, just has fallen in love with Pitter. And mm. last week I spent, I spent much of last week helping to arrange for five of Pitter's poems to be published in a scholarly work that's called, I think it's called The Bible as Literature. And mm. her poems are going to appear in the modern period. So I guess 20th century. And so mm -hmm. five of her poems are, are going to be used in this particular volume, again, dealing with the, the Bible as literature. Mm -hmm. So That's anyway. great. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I hope that just continues because she's such a delight to read, you know, just, just really approachable. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't scare you away like, say, Charles Williams might or, uh, you know, for that matter. Lewis is very philosophical, but he's also, his poetry is more approachable as well than say 
again, yeah. Williams or Elliot or, you know, even Yates. It just feels like good kind of beef and beer and gardens, a sort of, <laughs> sort of poetry, right? Not just, and, and, and technically masterful. There's such pleasure in, in reading this. Would you mind playing Rhubub Pie? Oh, no. I was going to mention that because we, you, your listeners need to hear one of her comic poems. That's right. And she sort of reads it with a little bit of a Cockney accent, too, I think. Sounds great. Let's see. You know, when I when I published Hunting the Unicorn, I, I, I thought about maybe we should include, you know, a CD of her reading her poems, but I, I couldn't pull it off. It was a little bit too complicated back then. Let me see if I can get this to move ahead. No, you're fine. Yeah, there's there's got to be a way now. I mean, I'm sure there's. Some... I I just don't use this boom box, so I, I only <laughs> can't even understand the directions. But I'll, I'll try again. Let's see. No worries. It can't be that complicated, right? Mm, well, it probably can. <laughs> Let's see. I think I got it. Rhubarb pie or the rival pastry cooks. Kids are funny. You never know how to take them. I had to go up to London the other day, so I asked my neighbour across the way to give them all their dinner, see? He's always very good to me. Though I agreed, like quite content, I packed my traps and off I went. And when I got back pretty late, I said to my twin girls, what's eight now, Dawn and Eve, I said, come on, tell me all you've been and done. I hope you were all very good and nicely mannered with your food, and that young Charles and little Dave and Peter didn't misbehave. I'm certainly sure that Mrs. Price took pains to cook you something nice. Not like your own mum, but she'd try, they said, chop toad and rhubarb pie. What rhubarb pie? What you can't eat? Oh, I'll have to pop across the street and tell her that you can't abide puddings and pies with that inside. Oh, dear, she would be vexed, I know, to see you go and leave it so. But, Mum, they said, we ate a lot. It was so nice and fresh and hot, we said to Mrs. Price. Oh, my, this is a lovely rhubarb pie. Well, well, I thought this is a change. On Monday, when I liked the range to do the roast, and next day's stew... I'll make a rhubarb pie or two. You think they'd eat it? Oh, dear, no. They set the old five in a row. They set and looked me in the eye and said, we don't like rhubarb pie. And goodness knows the reason why. Classic. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah, when I read that in the in the Collected Poems book, I immediately brought it to my wife and, and showed her, and she got a chuckle out of it because, yeah, that's exactly kids have certain things they decide they won't eat and then someone else can make them that same thing and they'll eat it and then you know back with you they change their mind yep but uh, yeah so fun yeah i think that's from the rude potato volume okay but she's got there's one that she gives from the point of view of a weed that's being pulled up and it's 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 really funny i won't try to read it it's pretty long but uh, if you come across it i think you'll get a kick out of that one too
Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've so been enjoying just kind of leafing through her poetry. So I, I'm no doubt I will. So I, I guess just to, just to kind of wind toward, towards the end of, of this hour, tell me about her, her later life. How, how does she sort of, you know, post middle age, um, does she, yeah. does she continue working as an artisan? Does she, yeah. Yeah. I think I think her last really powerful volume of verse was entitled The Ermine. It was published in, I think, 1953. But she published four or five additional volumes later on. She, her, she continued to be an artisan, although the business that she had really suffered from what happened in World War II. So she mostly kind of worked out of her, her own house. In the early 50s, she and her business partner and lifelong friend, they retired to Long Crenton, which is a village, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 miles from Oxford. They That's did right. That. They did that so that they could be near, primarily near David Cecil and his wife, but also Lewis. Lewis wasn't that far away. So she continued to write poetry. She continued to basically paint tea trays by this time. And she had sort of a resurgence of her career when the BBC began to have her do radio broadcasts. She would read her poems or she would read poems by others. Eventually, she was a regular member of the Brains Trust, which was one of the first sort of talking heads kind of programs. Readers would, there would be a topic and listeners would write in with questions. And then Pitter and the other panelists would, would answer their questions. And she was oftentimes paired with, you know, people who had quite contrasting views to her. But she would receive these lovely letters from listeners who who basically said, boy, you really wiped the table last, last <laughs> week. Um, so that was a lot of fun for her, I think. She, she earned a little bit of income. A highlight came when she received the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. She was the first woman to receive the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, after living the long Crendon, things sort of slowed down. She spent a lot more time gardening, <clears throat> writing less, but still on occasion writing some poems. And as I said, from 19, I think 1966 until 1992, she put out, I think, three more volumes of verse. But they, they tended to be poems that she had worked on early in her life and she came back to and, and finished up. So she lived a good full life. The last few years of her life, she was totally blind hmm. and was taken care of by some some kindly neighbors and by people in her church. She wrote a series of passion plays for her local church, and they were they were put on regularly for a while. So she had a very active active life. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's great, and and it's it's good that you know that that the queen at least was reading yeah. and and, and recognizing. <clears throat> it sounds like you know. People who are not, you know, people who are not part of the, you know, vanguard of modernism were quite interested in yeah. in her in her poems. And uh, yeah, I looked up Ruth Pitter tea trays, and I saw on Etsy one was just sold for or, or sold a little while. It didn't say when, but it said sold, and it, it was like an like $62 or something like that. Yeah. But I was very I, angry. I, I have one. I have one. I'll, I, I'll tell you the oh, story. Yeah. <clears throat> when we, my, my college library, I, I think when I published 
can't remember if I was hunting a unicorn or when I published her letters. But anyway, <clears throat> after I spoke a few minutes about the book, one of the librarians, one of who was a colleague of mine, she came out with a teapot and some teacups on a tea tray. And it was, she had bought, or excuse me, she had bought one of Ruth Pitter's tea trays that this tea set was on, and she gave it to me after the reading. Wow. Really sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I was reading that letter of Lewis's when he receives a tea tray from yeah. Ruth Pitter, <laughs> kind of talking about how, oh, well, now it's the nice tea tray, and I guess right. I'll never get to use it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. There's such a yeah. It's 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 so interesting to have a poet who's also you know who else who also makes physical things. You know, all yeah. William Morris, right, or or William Blake for that matter, right. He she's a little more down to earth than than either of them. But uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's certainly a poetic way of being that is often overlooked. But well, I, I would say too. <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is cracking a little bit here. Oh no worries. I would say, too, uh, one of the things I've always admired about Pitter and her relationship with Lewis is, you know, there's some people who want to who want to claim that Lewis was a misogynist. But I think if you look closely at his relationship with somebody like Ruth Pitter and uh, Sister Penelope out there at the, you know, the, the vicar or the nunnery, I guess it was, he, he, he was very friendly with women. So that was, I think that was another reason I wrote the, the biography. I, I wanted to establish that Lewis wasn't a misogynist. Yeah. Did he, yeah. did he, did he have mid 20th century views of women? Probably, mm -hmm. but he never treated a, a woman as if she were a second class citizen or not as important. Right. As yeah. Because he was trained by chivalry yeah. to, to yeah. a degree. Right. Right. And, and as such a, strong view of you all you behave like a gentleman but yeah gosh something else i was gonna ask yeah it's gone maybe we'll come back but i've got one last thing i'd like to read uh, yeah please <clears throat> i took the title of biography hunting the unicorn from one of uh, pitter's bbc talks and I think what she's really trying to describe here is what some of us today might call sort of an epiphany experience. But this is what she said in this BBC radio address. She's recalling an early experience from Hainault Forest, something we maybe at another time we could talk about. But early on in her life, she spent a lot of time in this forest near her home and she just loved it. But she writes this, I was sitting in front of a cottage door one day in spring Long ago, a few bushes and flowers round me, a bird gathering nesting material, the trees of the forest at a little distance, a poor place, nothing glamorous about it, when suddenly everything assumed a different aspect. No, its true aspect. For a moment, it seemed to me, the truth appeared in its overwhelming splendor. The secret was out the explanation given, something that had seemed like total freedom, total power, total bliss, a good with no bad as its opposite, an absolute that had no opposite. This thing so unlike our feeble nature had suddenly cut across one's life 
and vanished. What is this thing? Is it, could it be, after all, a hint of something more real than this life? A message from reality, perhaps a particle of reality itself? If so, no wonder we hunt it so unceasingly and never stop desiring and pining for it. And it seems to me that, among other things, it sort of resonates with Lewis's search for joy. Yeah. Uh, both of them had this kind of longing and this desire for it. And she, for at least for a moment, she says she experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And I love the, I love the epiphany. It's like a mystical experience that is also very orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the good with no evil as its opposite yeah. sort of, sort of thing. But yeah, that's, it's fantastic. Well, I, I don't think I care to add much to that, to diminish the, you know, to, to diminish the enjoyment of, of Pitter's words in, in listeners' minds. So without further ado, Don W. King, thank you so much for coming on the Inklings Variety Hour. And thank you so much for your work, just promoting this poet who's little known, but deserves to be more well-known. It's been a pleasure in both cases. I'm a, obviously a big fan of Pitter. Hope, I hope that in future years that who knows, maybe in the 21st century, there'll be a resurgence among scholars uh, for her poetry. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, even if not, I mean, the enjoyment that she yeah. kind of brings, it's it's worth it. So listeners, go check out some Ruth Pitter poems. They're great. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks. full of joy unscheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan